This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the 2019 Hawaii Island Festival of Birds, Ha'akulumanu, held October 24th through the 28th, 2019. Because of its location in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Hawaii is an important stopover spot for many birds, and this year's festival celebrates those wanderers and migrants in addition to the unique native bird life of the Hawaiian Islands. Attendees can expect a field trip to some of the most unique landscapes in the world, a bird fair, and entertaining talks from fascinating speakers. You won't want to miss out. Get more information at birdfesthawaii.org. This is the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. Hello and welcome. It's summertime, which means it's time for two things. Music festivals and breeding birds. And typically, those things do not intersect in any sort of interesting way, except this year in Chicago, when a pair of piping plovers nested for the first time in decades at Montrose Beach on the north side of the city. Piping plovers, especially those Great Lakes breeding birds, are one of our most threatened shorebird species. So that was exciting, except that a big music festival, big electronic dance music festival, was planned to be held on that very same beach later this summer, and the presence of the plovers made that a little more complicated. We at the uh, ABA have sort of been following this story for a little bit. Our own Greg Neese is a Chicago resident, a Montrose partisan, and he's been on it. Montrose is, of course, you know, ostensibly a bird sanctuary, though the city has not always managed it as well as some in the Chicago birding community feel like they could have, especially with regard to off-leash dogs. That is another rant, perhaps for another time. Anyway, the the park department was trying to broker this compromise between the bird folks and the music festival folks, at least until the weather intervened. There's been a ton of rain in the upper Midwest this spring and summer, and the Great Lakes are really high this year, to the point where the area where the plovers were nesting and where the festival was scheduled to take place completely flooded. So in steps the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. They took the eggs and removed them to an incubator, I think in Michigan now, though it might be at the Lincoln Park Zoo. Anyway, they are currently incubating with people who know how to deal with that sort of thing. And in fact, they actually got the eggs off the beach not more than an hour or so before the actual area flooded. So, you know, potentially that's a sad ending, but... Fear not, this story actually has a happy ending. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources may have pulled a quick one on the plovers, but they inadvertently prompted the pair of birds to breed again, and this time they chose a better spot, higher up on the dune, farther away from human activity. So now we get double the plovers. Local organizations have put together teams of volunteers to watch them, essentially around the clock. And the music festival? Well, it has to go somewhere else too, which is just as well. Music is great, but not on the same beach as threatened shorebirds. It's been actually a very interesting story to follow. You know, pipe, it's funny, piping plovers are one of those flashpoint birds. It seems like they are always in the middle of this sort of thing. They like to nest in places where people like to be, uh, for example, scenic beaches. And they like to do this at times when people like to be at the beach. So there are you know, tons of stories of piping plovers being this bird that is always at the center of these environmental land use 
issues. It happens at Cape Cod National Seashore in Massachusetts. It happens at Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina. It happened earlier this month in New Jersey, where a series of summer concerts were canceled because of a piping plover nest. These stories do not always have happy endings and often can turn a lot of people off of these laws that are intended to protect wildlife, but it's, it is great to see this sort of win-win, even if it was a little inadvertent. And because of the rain, Mother Nature always looks after her own, right? Well, imperfectly, at least the first nest was flooded after all. On the show today, I'm going to touch that third rail. I have some thoughts on playback, referencing a recent article in Birding Magazine by Lauren Benedict. It's a really good article. But first... We at the ABA are in the middle of our nesting season appeal. The money that we raise now goes largely to young birder programs, which have been influential in shaping the lives of many, many young birders. We're going to talk about that today with Camp Colorado director Jenny Duberstein and recent Camp Colorado alumnus Robert Buckert. And all that is after this week's Red Birds. This is your ABA Rare Bird Focus for the end of June, first part of July 2019. We'll start in Florida, where the ABA's third record of red-legged thrush turned up in Miami-Dade County, the second such record of the species in 2019. And, and unlike the previous two incidences of this Caribbean version of our American robin in the United States, this one was not a one-day wonder. It stuck around for a few days, allowing lots of birders to make contact with it, which is always nice. Two records of this species in a matter of months is pretty noteworthy, but as I said earlier this year with regard to the individual that was seen up in Palm Beach County, just north of Miami, earlier this year, I'm surprised that there are so few records of this species in the ABA area, especially compared with other Caribbean vagrants. They're quite common in the Bahamas, which is only about 50 miles to the east over water, and thrushes are strong flyers and good dispersers. All I'm saying is that it would not surprise me if this is not the last record in 2019. There are a handful of first records to note. The pattern we've seen this year of southern species in northern places continues. This week saw the report of a dick sissel in the Northwest Territories in Northwest Canada. That is a territorial first. This was from late May, only reported recently. But you may recall that that was about the time that all this stuff started happening. Colorado's likely first record of yellow-green vireo was heard singing in Baca County last week. This is another species that has turned up northward this year, including a previous record from New Jersey. In Washington, a crested auklet, normally a bearing seabird, was photographed from shore in Seattle. That represents a first record for that state. And last, a limpkin in Wayne County, Ohio is a first. This has notably been a banner year for limpkins in several states. North Carolina had one. South Carolina had a couple. Georgia has had many more than normal. And even Alabama had one. I believe it's fourth. So it's not too surprising that one finally broke out of the southeast and ended up north of the Ohio River. The rest of you Mideast states should keep an eye out. I only covered a few of the notable records for the last couple weeks. For all the rest, check out the ABA blog every Friday. And if you like to get these sorts of records as soon as they happen, you can join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Gordon, president of the American Birding Association and executive producer of this podcast. I'd like to thank you for listening and for helping make the American Birding Podcast such a successful and valued part of the ABA's programming. I'd also like to ask you to help keep our programming varied and vital by contributing to our nesting season appeal. 
Summer is a critical time for the ABA, just like it is for the birds we love. Your gift today at aba.org gift or by calling us at 800-850-2473 will make a real difference. At the ABA, we do a lot with a little, and we don't bombard you with endless electronic and paper fundraising appeals proclaiming impending doom. That's not our style, and our members and supporters tell us they appreciate it. But that doesn't mean we don't need your help. We truly do. If we are to keep supporting and encouraging future generations of leaders in the birding and conservation communities, if we are to reach out to all with the message of the value and virtues and joys of birds and birding, if we are to continue to shine a light on how the birding community is a force for good in so many lives, to do all these things, we need your help. For 50 years, the ABA has helped lead and galvanize our community and to innovate in ways that matter. Please help us keep this proud legacy going far into the future. Call us today at 800-850-2473, and yes, that's 800-850-BIRD, or go to aba.org gift and make this nesting season a great one. Thank you, and good birding. The ABA summer camps have long been an avenue for young birders to take in some excellent birding opportunities with leaders in our field, to network with young birders, and to learn about career opportunities in birding and ornithology. So many young people who have gone on to become influential in our community have come through ABA camps and other young birder camps, and, and many, many more consider it uh, an important experience in their birding lives. I am joined today by a couple people who have been involved in ABA young birder camps in various capacities. Jenny Duberstein is the ABA's longtime director of Camp Colorado. She's also the coordinator of the Sonoran Joint Venture Bird Conservation Partnership. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Robert Buckert is a young birder from Rochester, New York, and a recent attendee of Camp Colorado. Welcome, Robert. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with you, Robert. How was the Camp Colorado experience for you on the whole? Okay, so it was an all-around very incredible experience. So <laughs> all the instructors were very impressive, welcoming, and personable. So we have pretty much world-class birders guiding us this whole time. Uh, Jake Molman from the Wings Tours that goes all around the world. Ashley Gorbett, the um, bands around the nation. And of course, our wonderful Jenny Duverstein. And then uh, the variety of habitat we were able to explore was immense. And the amount of information I learned is pretty much unmeasurable. I uh, it wasn't only confined to birds, as some people may believe. We had a pretty holistic uh, ecological education there with uh, various presentations on the different habitats we were visiting. Um, and I certainly had some incredible birds along the way as well. Uh, 25 lifers, and I brought my Colorado state list up to 125 nice. species. So it was very successful <laughs> in that way. Um, another striking feature of this camp is the uh, friendships that you can forge. So, of course, it's quite unique in the way that it is a young birder camp. There are many around the uh, country itself, and uh, obviously ABA leads, <laughs> leads the field in this way. But um, it enables this very like-minded youth to meet from all around the country, and here we can learn, grow, and have fun together in this new experience. And uh, even though it's only one week, these uh, connections that were formed were quite deep, and we still, uh, several of us still communicate almost on a daily basis. So. Um, that yeah, but, pretty much sums up the camp experience, I think, quite well. Have you have you taken part in other sort of nature themed camps? 
not necessarily birding camps, but just sort of generalized nature things where you where you where you live. So I know when I was in elementary school, I did a little herpetology camp um, at a local museum where we went out and did some uh, research in some local woods, exploring those uh, newts and salamanders as well as some frogs. Um, that was pretty limited. I was only in fourth grade and it was a day camp. Let's see. Other than that, I attended an archaeological dig camp out of uh, one of the SUNY colleges here, uh, State University of New York at Geneseo. And um, that's not extremely nature related, but that's, I haven't really. Mm -hmm. That's all sort of in that that Um, vein. (laughs) Other than that, I have not attended any other type of uh, nature camp in the region. And uh, how did you, how did you learn about the ABA Young Birder Camps? So some exploring with my friends on Facebook. So I was able to Mm -hmm. uh, um, make friends with a few uh, kids. Uh, I think Noah Cuck and Peter Binstock. They're uh, a couple Midwestern young birders. And I noticed on their um, pages that they had some interesting posts from this camp, Colorado, as well as some adult leaders from this region that were uh, familiar with these uh, young birder programs that were able to lead me on the right direction in finding out this camp. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, how long have you been working with Camp Colorado now? Oh, that's a good question. I think <laughs> so. I've been I've been directing Young Birder Camps um, since 1997, but not for the ABA. And let's see, I think 2011 maybe was the first year that I was with Camp Colorado. Um, I, I ran another Young Birder Camp called On the Wing for what was then called Colorado Bird Observatory, what's now Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. Um, and then I'm one of the, the co-leaders for events, Camp Chiricahua also. And so they all, they all kind of blend together. <laughs> right. So how many, how many young birders do you think you've worked with over the years? That's a good question too. So <laughs> <laughs> hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I geez, mean, so each yeah. year just at Camp Colorado, I have, um, so I have 22 campers per session and two sessions per year. So almost 50 kids per summer. Um, yeah. Wow. So it adds up. Yeah. So, so what is the experience like from your perspective? You know, all all that work that you put into bringing this camp to fruition every year. Um, it's amazing. You know, I've been doing it long enough now that, you know, I sort of have I have the shopping list. I know exactly what I need to get for food and snacks, right. and I know generally where we're going to go for our field trips, and I know when I need to call to rent the vehicles and make sure we have the dorm space. So that the the logistics side of it is. Um, you know, kind of set and I can really focus on um, the program side and making sure that I'm, I'm bringing staff together that are not only going to work well together, but that really bring special experiences to the campers and to each other. Yeah, that, that's got to be a, a kind of a, an interesting you know, tightrope to walk because you not only need people who are you know, excellent birders, but also people who can relate to young birders in a way that will you know, make the experience better for them. Absolutely. And, and people that I, I know will work well together that have similar, you know, that have skills that complement each other that have similar teaching styles or styles leading in the field. um, Because it's, it's really important that the instructor team, you know, sort of a, a unified front and can just sort of seamlessly play off of each other and bounce off of each other um, in terms of skills and and knowledge. Yeah. And and what sort of experience do you really want to create? for these young birders? So I was laughing inside a little bit when Robert talked about adding birds to his Colorado list. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> anybody that knows uh-huh. me 
that Robert will will say this, knows that I'm not a lister. And that's sort of my least favorite thing is like to go out with a target (laughs) bird and be disappointed if we didn't see that bird. It's not to say that I don't love showing people new birds. I don't love seeing the excitement and the experience uh, you know, living vicariously through through other people's experience there. But but what I really hope kids get out of it is kind of what Robert was saying, sort of a, a complete experience. You know, obviously we're going out and looking at birds for sure, but we're learning, we're seeing different habitats. We're talking about conservation. We do these field craft workshops. You know, we've had writing and field journaling and photography and art and um, just all sorts of different topics and, and areas of expertise that the um, the instructors bring to the table. And, and my goal is to um, help young birders become well-rounded so that it's not just about who comes away with the biggest list or the what species we got that day, um, but just a, a fuller appreciation. This is sort of a question for both of you. Do you both sort of see young, you know, quote unquote, birders having a more generalized interest in nature. Because I, I did Camp Chiricahua, oh my God, that's like 25 years ago now. And um, I, I remember it was very bird focused and that may have been the leaders or whatever. But you no, know, when I'm thinking back on that experience now, I almost wish that I had done more kind of general nature looking things just because, you know, as my own experience as a birder has moved on, has progressed, I guess, I've sort of become a more holistic nature person although birds are still the primary way with which i interact with nature do you do you find that sort of young birders are sort of you know getting in on this on the ground level are sort of interested in everything not just birds at least speaking from my perspective i'm interested in um pretty much any field of nature that comes to my attention uh, not just birding but as you said definitely the the primary focus is birds and i think this is true for um most young birders out there (laughs) they're not you know in order to interact with birds and kind of experience them in a more intimate way, you have to be more interested in other aspects of nature that aren't just the birds themselves. Well, yeah, it sure. And even from the one session of Camp Colorado that I attended, there were, um, a number of other birders that were highly interested in the the butterflies. I know that's another really um, popular field associated mm-hmm. with birding. Um, they were interested in the butterflies that we were seeing or the botanists of the trip that were taking pictures of all the plants. And um, this helped a lot when we connected it to iNaturalist with a short iNaturalist workshop. So um, yeah, people were able say, to yeah. help in that way. And of course, there are some people that um, pretty much just go straight along for the birds. But I think on the more uh, general sense, Definitely, uh, birding connects people to nature in a broader way, and young birders are more interested in things outside of just birds. Yeah, and I I agree with that. I definitely feel like um, the the young people that come to these programs are kind of you know pretty well rounded naturalists and see understand the importance of you know knowing what is the tree that the bird mm-hmm. is in because it can it can tell you a lot more about what you're seeing by understanding the habitat around it and then also just having a, a broader interest in stuff like mammals or you know like we're super excited to see a, a badger or prairie dogs or things like that oh yeah, those are awesome. yeah <laughs> for sure exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you go into all the species of uh, chipmunks. Do you go that deep? We or... do. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, the American yeah, West is good for that there. stuff. 
You can. There are certain young birders that that I won't name names that may or may not <laughs> have gotten yelled at for trying to feel, feed a gold mantle ground squirrel. <laughs> you got to get those good photos. Yeah, he knows who he is. <laughs> do you? Do, how how do you incorporate things like iNaturalist and eBird into your kind of day to day camp? activities so we um we keep i have a a college aged intern um for camp colorado each session and one of the things that that they're in charge of is keeping our ebird checklists and usually um there are at least a handful if not more of campers who are very into ebird also and so they assist with that um and so we keep this group checklist and then share it with everybody and no, in those field craft workshops that I mentioned, one of the ones that we've offered the last couple of years is iNaturalist. And so not everybody has to do it, but for the kids who do want to do it, um, you know, they learn more about it. And then at the beginning of each day, we offer an iNaturalist challenge, you know, so the challenge for people who want to do oh, nice. it is to take pictures of 10 species of plants or five species of insects, and then to kind of share that at the end of the day. So it's a way to get a, you know, get... A, a bigger picture, a more holistic picture of the the things that we're seeing and learning about. Yeah. And th- this isn't a young birder observation or anything, but it is remarkable to me the extent to which programs like that have really encouraged uh, kind of a more generalized interest in nature. I don't use iNaturals for birds. It's kind of awkward for birds, but uh, man, it is so good for bugs and plants and herps and all sorts of other stuff. And, you know, those sort of programs really get me interested it's it's what has gotten me interested in those things that i wouldn't necessarily be interested in otherwise yeah, i agree completely same same experience for me yeah yeah so jenny was talking a little bit about the experience she wants to create for these young birders robert does she pull it off i think she's <laughs> quite successful yes not focusing on the target birds is definite i mean not being disappointed by them is something that's really well achieved so we all have to accept in the birding world that for every bird that we successfully find in our searches, there's going to be another one that does not pan out. And uh, this is <laughs> yeah, well illustrated and worked in the camp. And as, as well as focusing <laughs> on, just like she said, the things that are other than birds, um, we learn a lot. We have a nightly presentation about the habitat that we're visiting the next day. I know Bill Schmoker, in the beginning, he led us through a presentation on the main habitat groups of Colorado. And then from there, we, you know, we visited from the alpine and montane habitats for a few days to all the way down to the foothills and grasslands. And we really keyed in on some of the more, you know, the keystone species that are found in those habitats and how they interact with um, the birds. So that was, that was well achieved. I mean, the camper relations are held really well together. I mean, there are, there, there's not that much, uh, fighting or disagreement between the campers themselves <laughs> and uh it's pretty well managed on that front and then another thing that's interestingly stressed is the uh the field notes and the field sketching so we would always take time out in the field to um just kind of sit around and take in our surroundings and then at this point we can take out our field journals and jot down notes draw some sketches and then at the end of the day we will present this and um I'm sure Jenny could talk to you more about the importance of this, but it it does really make a difference in the camp program. That was one thing that um, we we started this last year for the first time. So one oh, really? of not it it wasn't the um, well not the field journaling part, but the part where we we shared it at the end of the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the day. So for the first session of camp, not your session, um, Rafael Galvez was one of our instructors, and he's of course a, a world class. Mm-hmm. 
artist. Former ABA Bird right, of the Year exactly. artist. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so he, we, we really incorporated art to an extent that we never have before in Camp Colorado. And one of the things that he suggested doing was that at the end of the day, anybody that had sketched something that wanted to share it, we just put our field notebooks on the table and we all kind of walked around and pointed out things that we liked or things that were interesting or jumped out at us. Um, and so then for Robert's session, we didn't have, I guess Joel Such was the intern. He w- was my intern and he had, yes. he was the artist, but none of the staff um, were, Ashley Gorbett's a good artist, I guess. I'm a terrible artist. Um, <laughs> but so we focused not just on sharing drawings, but, you know, if you wanted to write something, mm-hmm. just something that you had created or noted that day. And um, it, it was a neat way to... Um, I don't know, give each other positive reinforcement and yeah, sort yeah. of build the, the camp community. A little yeah, reflection. Definitely. Exactly. That sort of activity, field sketching, field notebooks, is, is sort of the thing that really, really seems to benefit from having a mentor, sort of a mentor-mentee relationship. Because, I mean, you can do it on your own at home, but you, I don't know, you, you, it's, it's interesting to see how other people approach that, that same thing. Yeah. And um, you could get a lot of tips. Learn a lot of Almost things. Almost any aspect that, of birding uh, benefits from yes, that um, mentor-mentee uh, relationship, yeah. especially from a young birder perspective. Uh, Jenny, would you have considered yourself a young birder? No, definitely no. not. No, yeah. I didn't. I, I loved nature and the outdoors. Um, I was going to be a wildlife vet. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I had a, a volunteer position at the Pittsburgh Zoo when I was in high school. Um, and that was, that's what I was going to do. And I, I studied wildlife biology in college and it wasn't until, um, my junior year, I guess it was the summer after my junior year, I got my first wildlife job, which happened to be a bird job. And kind of went went downhill from there. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I was, I was probably 20. I mean, so by my definition now, yes, I would consider somebody <laughs> yeah, that's who's right. Anyone uh, is not retired yet, actually, sometimes feels like a young birder. Exactly. Yeah. But compared to, you know, the 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds that come to these camps, no, I was definitely not like that. Are there any experiences that you've had as a, you know, younger or novice birder that you sort of want to recreate for campers? <laughs> I mean, I just remember there was a, some yellow, there was a pair of yellow-shafted flickers nesting in my backyard. And that was, that was the war on, you know, I spent, I couldn't figure out what it was. <laughs> I was looking at it for a really long time or some starlings. That was another thing. I saw some starlings in fresh plumage yeah. and I just couldn't, I knew sort of in my head what starlings were and that they were introduced, at, but I didn't think they were beautiful. <laughs> and so I couldn't <laughs> like pair it together. So like that, that sense of, I, I wish people never, I want them to never lose that sense of wonder, you know, that, that yes, seeing white-tailed ptarmigan is amazing or brown-capped rosy finches is unbelievable mm-hmm. or, but <laughs> there's something spectacular in the common everyday birds that we see also. Um, and just to kind of appreciate that. Do you think that you get that, Robert? I know, because even as someone that's been birding for a long time, that, that can be a difficult thing. I, I, I try to fight it myself, but sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, it's just another blue gray gnat catcher or Already. just another, you know, whatever. And like, and then if I stop and, you know, pay attention, I'll like, you'll find a blue gray gnat catcher exactly. nest, which is always kind of a fun experience yeah. too. There's always more in the common species, no matter, no matter what true. And, you, how you chalk it up. There's no such thing as, you know, a trash bird or whatever like that. And, uh, there's always more that we can learn about what we're looking at or even I, something that was <laughs> funny. Um, that we talked about with the field sketching is, you know, the difference between 
you know, seeing and observing and understanding the differences. Like I remember the field sketching workshop was outside and they had to sketch a male house sparrow from memory. And who doesn't see a house sparrow almost Ooh, every wow. single day? Yeah. But how often but do, do you they really look, look at, at it? it? And yeah. were, the, the big question was, does a house sparrow have wing bars? How many? What is, what is going on with this? <laughs> what color so, are its legs? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so that was a, a funny thing that was just there. That's interesting. I've heard that sort of um, exercise taken with like a blue jay. Mm-hmm. Like someone asked me one time, like, could you draw a blue jay from, from That's memory? Super intricate. It's like, man, you start, <laughs> you start thinking about like the pattern of the black on the exactly. face and like, do, have I really paid a lot of attention to it? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting exercise. Definitely. There's one that I do that I've done with the campers is similar. It's from one of those Tom Brown books, but I say, okay, tell me. How many places on its body does an American robin have white? Oof. Ooh, yeah. Hmm. It's good thought. There's one for you to think we'll of, to podcast go. listeners. Yes. <laughs> right have to go look at, uh, look at the robin through my front yard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. Is there any, like, one experience? This is a question to both of you two. Is there any one experience that you had at camp that you really f- were able to kind of sit back in the moment and think, man, this is, this is extraordinary? I have one. Okay, so Tad Floyd was able to visit us for a day. He led us through the foothills mm-hmm. and then came back to the YMCA with us and joined us, joined with us for some burning around the lodge, as well as some like decompression talks. So we talked a lot, a lot about how we could get involved in the ABA and write for um, the magazines and the publications that ABA is involved with. Um, I don't think talking on the podcast was something that he mentioned, but this is very cool and I'm glad, glad to be here. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we got very deep in just the young birder dynamic of America. And it was really funny um, mm-hmm. just hearing everyone's thoughts on how young birders interact with old birders in person and how young birders interact with each other and how the digital community. Excuse me, excuse me. Experienced birders. Experienced birders. Robert. Okay. Sorry. Yes, excuse me. <laughs> Old um, birders. My goodness. <laughs> um, but it's and just the various types of interactions that uh, occur between birders in the United States. And we were able to have some pretty comprehensive discussion on, over this topic with Ted Floyd and all the leaders and all the campers. So, yeah, that's definitely, yeah. that was probably that's neat experience. Oh yeah, I, I talked to Ted here on the podcast fairly regularly. He's uh, definitely yes. a thoughtful guy, and uh, yeah, I imagine he had a lot to say about that. <laughs> For me, I think um, I'm just thinking specifically about last year. Um, but this this could be true for for any year. So one of the other traditions that I have at camp is on the last night, everybody has a chance to share, you know, a thought about an experience that meant a lot to them or what camp meant to them or share a picture that they took or something that they drew that sort of helps encapsulate their experience. Um, And without fail, it always ends up being super emotional. There's like many of us are in tears Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's just beautiful or so powerful. And um, I, I think that you know, more than half, more than three quarters, maybe all, a lot of the kids that come, they come to this camp and it's, it's a place where they can be themselves, where they don't have to hide what they're interested in, um, where they're accepted for who they are and what they love and what they want to do. Um, and for me, that's, that's just the most important, most powerful thing, better than any bird that I can show anybody or anything that I can teach anybody or uh, any particular experience in the field that I can give just to know that, that we've created this space and this community 
where young people can come and feel welcomed and valued and um, free to be themselves. That that for me is the most important. Yeah, there, there's something about like camp that kind of you know encourages that sort of thing, and there's something about birding. I think, you know, at, at its best, birding has always been to me like the super earnest experience. Uh, you know, you want to experience the outdoors, you want to experience nature, you want to, you know, like fully geek out uh, about these sort of things. And, um, oh, I can see how the combination of those two things could be magical, uh, super great. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Jenny is our longtime director of ABA's Camp Colorado, and Robert is a young birder, a recent Camp Colorado uh, attendee from New York. You can get more information about ABA camps or any of the ABA's young birder programs at youngbirders.aba.org. Thanks so much to both of you uh, for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. If you're a member of the ABA, you recently received the June 2019 issue of Birding magazine and it's it's a really good one not only because this issue boasts the first baby on the cover of any birding magazine not just birding magazine but any bird magazine uh, and before we get any additional complaints i can confirm that the cartoon cats on little francesca's footy onesie are all indoor cats you don't need to call us about that anymore but there are a couple of really great articles in the magazine that caught my eye, and I'm going to try and tie them together a, a little bit. You can, you can determine at the end whether I'm successful or not. Uh, first, Jeffrey Gordon's Burning Together column about birding with a purpose and what makes birders great people. And second, a really nice literary review of the science behind playback by Dr. Lauren Benedict. Uh, playback, of course, is the playing of bird vocalizations to attract desired, occasionally hard to see bird species or individual. You are playing back the bird song or call to get a response. It's one of the often argued about issues in birding, I think, uh, largely because now we all pretty much carry around personal speakers that can call up nearly any bird vocalization on the planet. Uh, to paraphrase Spider-Man, no spoilers, please. Uh, with great power comes great arguments. For a long time, the proponents of playback have pointed to a single David Sibley blog post from 2011 in which he argues for the responsible deployment of playback. And let's, let's be honest, there are times and places where it is appropriate. Researchers use it a lot to census areas where secretive birds can be found. Uh, bird guides use it a lot to get large groups of people on desired birds, which is a harder thing than many people may realize. And of course, you know, individual users use it from time to time for any number of reasons. Uh, I don't often use it when I'm birding on my own or with a small group of people, but I'd be lying if I said I never had. And as with many things that put the birders explicitly in the middle of any bird's awareness and not without a small bit of guilt. Those of us who have what Aldo Leopold called an ecological education often worry much more than we probably need to about our impacts. Uh, sometimes the worry is justifiable and noble in that it encourages us to make changes in our own behavior that help birds or to advocate for them. But sometimes uh, they're unnecessary, as I think uh, much of the playback debate, at least when it comes to the birds. Because as it turns out, and as Dr. Benedict explains, there's not a ton of evidence that playback affects birds in ways that significantly impact their lives. It does elicit a response that is 
in fact, be point of playback, but there is mixed, at best, evidence that it stresses birds in ways that are harmful or impacts their survival or the survival of their young. And I can tell you, you know, I've watched birds responding to playback. They come in and they, you know, they immediately start foraging on nearby trees. I'm not just saying this to sort of assuage my own guilt. I don't know that it ever goes away for some of us, but I do think that there is value in playing a tape for that golden-winged warbler and, you know, watching two dozen jaws drop to the ground when it comes in. Or you giving people a good experience with a bird that they couldn't have imagined otherwise, especially when you're you're talking about 15 minutes in the life of one golden-winged warbler. That's getting back to the idea that there are appropriate times and inappropriate times. And close observation of any individual bird will tell you sort of where that line needs to be drawn. Uh, Ultimately, I think that the thing with playback is about how we birders treat each other, which is sort of what Jeff was getting at in his Birding Together column. One of the things that Dr. Benedict mentions is that some birds, when they're too exposed to calls of a, you know, quote unquote neighbor, they just start ignoring it. So, you know, this is the idea of playing a bird out in the same way that encroaching on an owl or a nest means that fewer people will get to appreciate that bird, especially if it's an otherwise accommodating individual. You know, this is the reason why playback in heavily birded areas is a bad idea or playback of a known individual that many people will want to see. Our impact on the bird is light, but our impact on birding can be larger. It goes both ways, I suppose. The science goes both ways, too. Uh, Lauren concludes that there are situations when you can use playback and situations where you shouldn't, and the science will sort of back up either way. So in the end, you can just be smart, be conscientious, be aware. With so many birders out there, it's important to try to be responsible, model good behavior, teach good behavior, and read that article. It's really well worth your time. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and we could not do what we do without the help of members and donors. Join the ABA to help support this podcast and the many free resources we provide to the birding community. You can help us keep doing what we're doing. I certainly appreciate that. You can get more information at aba.org slash join or learn about our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. If you feel extra motivated to help us out, you can leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your comments help people find us, move us up the rankings, and give us great feedback that helps us make the show better. Thank you in advance for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Few times he's been around that track, but he won't blast tape in Central Park like that because he ain't no play a back girl. Ain't no play a back girl. Technical production is from John Lowry. He heard that you were blasting calls and you didn't think that he would hear it. People hear you playing that song, getting every bird or worked up. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. Ooh, that's my pish. That's my pish. Ooh, that's my pish. That's my pish. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at aba. This pish gets Savannah's S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Again, this pish gets Savannah's S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H sparrows. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.